Hi, my name is Caitlin. I've been asked to share the passage with you guys this morning. And if you could all stand while I read. Matthew 17, verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed instantly. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day, and they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Thank you. You may be seated. Three-point sermon this morning on um, demons, moving mountains, and paying taxes. So get your notebooks out. This is going to be a fun one. Uh, Matthew 17, where we'll camp out in this morning. Before we get started, I just, would you guys give a hand for the worship team? Before you do anything, though, I just, I really appreciate the fact that this crew is here like 6.30 in the morning, and they don't leave till like 1.30. So, Yeah. And all of our setup and teardown crew and the people running media in the back and everybody and kids, like, just give it up for all the volunteers. If you are new to our church, um, I, I hope that we put enough emphasis on the fact that we believe this is a family and that we all are kind of owners in this together. And so what a cool thing that we get to collaboratively sort of contribute and participate in the church together. This isn't just um, one man in a band that come up and put on a show for you every week. It's literally dozens on dozens of people that make sacrifice to make this happen. And so I'm just really thankful for everybody who contributes to that. And it is kind of a a helpless plug to say like, hey, why don't you guys do the same, right? If you're not helping, there's plenty of room. Like we could use it. So anyhow, Let me pray, and then let's get going. Jesus, I I thank you for uh, this text that we get to camp out in this morning. I thank you for your spirit. Um, I thank you, Jesus, that you're the one who leads us. And as as we tune our ears to your voice this morning, Jesus, I'm thankful that you are the one that we can count on, the only one that we can be anchored in, the one that we hope in, Jesus. And so would you meet us in this place this morning? I pray, God, for all of us in this room that came, uh, came here this morning with walls up, Lord, came here with just fear and maybe worry and stress and all these concerns of their life. I pray this morning, Jesus, would be just a, a, a brief moment where they would experience the rest and the peace of Jesus get a taste of that, Jesus, that we could live in that long term, God. So I pray that this morning we'd engage you in a very real way. May your spirit come, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So Matthew 17, kind of a strange text that we get to camp out in this morning. But if you remember last week, it was even weirder, right? So last week we had this whole story where we're on the mountaintop with Jesus, and we're literally watching as Jesus was with three of his disciples. Can anybody tell me who those were? Who's on the mountain with Jesus? Peter, James, John. Okay, these three guys are on this mountain with Jesus, and Jesus is literally being transfigured. He's being transformed before their eyes, and his face is glowing. And it was this sort of moment of amazing revelation and amazing glory that the disciples were able to witness. It was mind-blowing for the disciples to experience what they did with Jesus in this moment. 
And then all of a sudden, the transfiguration is over, right? Elijah and Moses show up, um, and then the, the, uh, the disciples are there, and they're in fear. They sort of fall to their faces. The next thing you know, when they come back to, and they look up, Elijah and Moses are gone, and the transfiguration is over. Jesus is no longer glowing, and it sort of returns back to normal, and Jesus uh, begins to lead these men off this mountain, as we talked about last week, down to the valley, like the last remaining days of Jesus' life. And so if you remember, Peter wanted to stay up on this mountain, and what did he want to do? He wanted to build some tents, right, for Elijah and Moses and for Jesus, sort of wanted to camp out in this moment as long as he could. And oftentimes, we talked about last week that it's the same for you and I. We want to get to these mountaintop experiences in life. We'd like to pitch tents, hang out there, stay there as long as we can, and that's not always the case. Sometimes Jesus wants us to come down off the mountain and to actually engage the valleys in our life. And so we talked about how these mountaintop experiences in in our lives aren't places of permanence for us yet. And so God leads us by his spirit over the peaks. He leads us by his spirit through the valleys. He strengthens us on the mountaintop so that we can then walk in the calling that he has for us, which is why most of our lives are spent between the mountaintops, not on them, right? Most of our lives are not spent on mountaintop experiences. It's spent in between them. And so we're sort of led this way because we're followers of Jesus. That's why we go to the mountaintops and we go into the valleys. We we are led this way because we're followers of his. And the only way to follow Jesus is to actually follow Jesus, to do what Jesus did. And so no matter what the geography of your life looks like, the ups and the downs, Um, we are called to follow him through the ups and downs of life. But one of the questions that I want us to wrestle with today is not why do we have to go through these ups and downs in life and not why do we have to go over the mountaintops and through the valleys. Um, Most of us know the answer to that. I just stated it. Like we go through those geographies of our life because we're following Jesus as he takes us over the mountains and through the valleys and he's always with us through them. But the question I ask is, why did Jesus have to go through those things? Why did Jesus have to not only be on the mountain and be transfigured, but then leave and come down into the valley and then experience the worst week of his life? Why did Jesus have to go this way? Why did Jesus have to come down from the mountain? Why did Jesus have to descend into the valley? And in our passage this morning, I think we see a few reasons why. And so I want to split this text up into some sections and then make three points out of it. And so uh, last week, as Jesus started to walk down the mountain and he began this descent, he began to descend into the lowest valley that existed, like in all of creation, a valley that nobody else will ever have to walk through because he went there for us, amen? A valley we will not have to experience because of Jesus went there for us. And we need to notice that this moment on the mountaintop was actually a strengthening moment for the Lord, for Jesus Christ, because Jesus is about to be tested. Jesus is about to have every ounce of his humanity put to test in the weeks to come. Jesus is about to be put to the limits of his own trust in his father, and he's about to find himself in a garden in a few chapters, sweating blood, praying that this valley or this cup would be taken from him. And this mountaintop experience was a moment of revelation for Jesus. And now, as Matthew is sort of transitioned from Peter's confession of Jesus as God in Matthew 16, we're being reminded over and over and over again that this tension is continually rising as Jesus moves into the valley, as he draws closer to his death. And so again, three reasons Jesus had to descend into the valley that we'll pull from the text this morning. Look at verse 14 with me. It says, And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures. Um, In other translations, it says that his son was an epileptic, and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And so Jesus leads his disciples down the mountain, and immediately they run into two specific things when they get uh, down the mountain. One, they run into the power of the enemy, like the power of Satan is alive and well. Two, they run into these crowds. It says at the beginning, when they came to the crowd. So there's a crowd there sort of waiting, awaiting them. And I don't want you to miss that this morning because 
this world is sort of full of these crowds, right? These crowds of people who are harassed and helpless, like by the power of Satan and by the power of demons. We cannot look at a text like this and just assume that this is fictitious and this does not happen today. So that was for then, and we can learn from it because we're strengthened by the Lord, but the demonic isn't taking place today. It's often where I think Christians end up lying. Or we say things like, I believe it's real, I just don't think that I'll have to experience it. The reality is, is that it's going on around us. It's, it's actually the battles being fought as we gather here this morning. There's a war being waged for the soul in the demonic. And so people all over the world, like these spiritual forces are at, at work in this world, and they're literally blinding people to the power of salvation that's made possible for us through Jesus. It's why people, when they come to know Jesus, they come to faith in Christ, they, they say things like, my eyes were opened up. Like, my heart was opened up. Like, I didn't even know this existed. Because there was something blinding them until they experienced the power of the living God. And this is why Jesus has such a massive heart for crowds. Like, look at Matthew 9, 36. It says, when he saw the crowds, it says, he had compassion for them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, is what Jesus said. So you see, it's, it's right here that we find this first reason that Jesus had to go back into the valley. Because in the valley is where the crowds are at, the people that are harassed and helpless without a shepherd. And Jesus came to do what? He came to set the captives free, didn't he? Jesus came to provide ultimate freedom. In the book of Isaiah in chapter 61, 700 years prior to the birth of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah said that the Savior would come and will be anointed to do several things. And he points out this, 700 years prior to Jesus, he says, bring good news to the poor, amen? This is good news for us, honestly. Bring good news to the poor. Bind up the brokenhearted. Open the prison for those who are bound. And to set the captives free. That that's why the Messiah had to come. And in Luke's gospel account, Jesus reads this prophecy from a scroll one day in a synagogue. And, um, and it says that he rolls up the scroll and then he sits down in the synagogue. And the eyes of all the people in the synagogue are now fixed on Jesus. Because he just read this prophecy. And to them, it's sort of as though Jesus is saying it's pointing to him. Like he might be the fulfillment of this. And so their eyes are fixed on him. And Jesus begins to say to them, Today, this scripture, this prophecy from Isaiah has been fulfilled in your hearing. Mind blower. For people that had heard the prophecy for years, that had been passed down generation after generation to actually hear this, that maybe Jesus is the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, the one that would bring good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, open the prison for those who are bound, and set the captives free. Amazing. And so Jesus leaves a, a moment where he literally has communion with his father up on this mountain, this transfiguration. And he's up on this mountain and he leaves this place of strength and power. He's radiating God's glory. And he walks down the mountain towards the crowd, the ones who are harassed and helpless, because Jesus came to demolish Satan. He came to demolish the strongholds, so Jesus enters back into the crowds. Honestly, Jesus is doing the same thing today, isn't he? He's doing the same thing in this room right now. This was at the core of his life and his ministry. His motivation was to set the captives free. And this is what made Jesus not only come down from the mountain that day, but it's what made Jesus leave heaven, leave the glory that was rightfully his, and come to be one of us so that he could set you and I free. And because of Christ, you don't have to live as a slave anymore. And this, this sounds like the same stuff that we've always heard in church, but honestly, this stuff should get us so amped as followers of Jesus. We should be so stoked right now. Like, we didn't have a way, he made a way. Our hearts were unshackled, we were imprisoned, we were enslaved. Jesus came to set us free, to break the chains that were binding us, to give us freedom, to liberate us fully in the midst of a world that is still bound. How amazing is that? And there's this, there's this power in this, in the gospel for you, 
There's actually enough power in this to deal with whatever it is you're struggling with in life right now. There's enough power in this. And that's the promise of God. For, for those who are disciples of Jesus, God's plan was to never free captives who would then stay passive. It was not God's plan. Somehow, that's, that's what's happened. <laughs> we, we preach the most amazing gospel, we proclaim it, and we say we've been set free, but then we live passive lifestyles as Christians, where we sit back. And that was never God's plan. Salvation in Jesus is so incredible for whoever it grips, right? It, it, it changes us every single time. If Jesus' salvation has come into your life, then it's actually changed you and it will continue to change you. It changes your motivations. Just like Jesus' motivation was to set the captives free, you better believe that should be our motivation as well. We live in a world helpless and harassed. We come down off the mountain radiating God's glory, walking back into the crowds that are desperately looking for something, and you've got the answer to it all. Not only do you have the answer, it's radiating from you, Christian, follower of Jesus. And so our motivation for getting out of bed in the morning becomes the same as Jesus. Like, we want to see the captives set free. It's, on, it's why we live. It's why we're here as Christians. It's why we walk through the valley and we tread over the mountaintops and we go up and down. It's why we do it because we believe there's a purpose and there's a plan in all of this, that God's gospel, Jesus' gospel is fanning out. It's going out. It's happening through you and I that in the same way that God's glory radiated through Jesus on that Mount of config, uh, Transfiguration, or Configuration, I guess, in the same way his glory is radiating through you and I to this world that desperately needs him. And so the disciples of Jesus sort of get this crash course. If you remember back to Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends out his 12 disciples, and that was exactly what he calls them to do in Matthew 10, 7, right? Proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without paying. How many of you, that just gets you fired up. <laughs> like, I just am like, ah, you know, that, that sounds amazing. Like, I want to be sent out for that. I am. And church, we are literally the empowered family of God on this mission together to set the captives free by preaching the gospel and wielding to the power of the Holy Spirit. It's happening. That's what the church does, and that's who the church is. And this is so much more than just us coming to a Sunday service to listen to some worship or even sing some songs or to listen to a sermon. It's much more than that. Those things don't make us faithful Christ followers. We preach the gospel. We proclaim freedom for the captives. We point others to the one that can provide that freedom for them. And that's why the next few verses really stand out. If you look at verse 16, this is what the father of this uh, boy with epilepsy says to Jesus in verse 16. He says, and I, I brought him to your disciples. And I, I can't do this justice, but I want you to just put yourself in this moment and understand the father of a kid who's demon-possessed, who's literally having seizures and falling into fires. He's tried, he's gone to the disciples, and now he's gonna bring him to Jesus. He says, I brought him to your disciples. If you were a parent, how many of you wouldn't try everything you can to get your kid the help that they need? He says, I brought him to your disciples, and they couldn't heal him. And Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Okay, so what's happening, what's happening here? Apparently, this father of this demon-possessed boy comes to the disciples of Jesus. He says, my son is enslaved, and we know that Jesus has the power to do this work. And so he goes to Jesus' disciples. He basically says, can you do this? And they try, and they're not able to do it. And it's interesting to me that this frustrates Jesus, which sort of tells us something, right? It tells us that the problem here wasn't their empowerment, it wasn't that the disciples lacked the power to do it. The, the problem here was that there's something going on inside the disciples. There's something keeping them from doing it. 
And Jesus calls them, and now understand, if you spent three years with Jesus up to this point, you've literally experienced it all, and you've lived life with him, and he says to you, you faithless and twisted generation. <laughs> Be like, ah, uh, pretty sure we've been trekking along for three years, you know, like we, we haven't left. Sounds pretty harsh. But it makes our next question really obvious. Like, why couldn't the disciples who were empowered to bring freedom just like the church is today, why couldn't they do it here? So look at verse 19. It says, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And so they're confused. I mean, I mean, they had done this before. Luke 9 records that after Jesus sent out the disciples, they went out and they had tons of success, right? That they had this amazing success in ministry. It says that they went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere is what it says. Sort of, and then like the kids who, you know, got a good report card and they run home to tell their parents about it. It says that the disciples run back to Jesus and they tell them about all they had done, all they had seen, all they had experienced. And, you know, Jesus is like, I know, you know, but they're like, you gotta, you gotta know what happened. Like, this is, this is what we saw. This is what we were a part of. And they're so excited at what had gone down, and they're amped to come home and tell Jesus about it. And so they had experienced this before. This was not new to them. So you understand why they're confused, because it's happened before, and this time it didn't. And so they wonder why they couldn't do it again. But here's how Jesus responds in verse 20. He says to them, because of your little faith. Jesus says, because of your little faith. Like, why didn't they have power? Why couldn't they bring freedom? Jesus says, because of their little faith. And he goes on to say, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to here, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. This, in my opinion might be one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible. The issue is faith, which is really surprising because when we think of faith, we think faith means you believe that Jesus is out there somewhere, that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, and that Jesus rose again for us, and that if you believe that and you have faith in that, then you're done, that's faith. I had faith in Jesus, and so I exercised that faith to receive salvation sort of done. And these guys walked with Jesus. They were literally, they were physically walking with Jesus. They knew that Jesus existed, unlike you and I, who lived 2,000 years on the other side of this, and maybe we have not seen him face to face. Maybe some of you have. We haven't. These guys walked with him and talked with him. They knew Jesus existed. They even knew who he was. Like Peter confessed it one chapter earlier. And so how can this be true? How could they not have had faith? And I want to pause here for a second. If you've ever spent time in sort of charismatic circles, um, you've heard this text preached over and over again. I grew up in the charismatic church, went to charismatic Bible college. I've heard this text preached hundreds of times. I've sat in these rooms. I've heard pastors literally, literally berate people in front of them because they have such little faith. You need to try harder. You need more faith. And I've heard them say, look, if you would just have more faith, Nothing would be impossible for you. You could do whatever you want, just have more faith. I've sat with parents whose children are dying and they're just like praying for their kids, believing in all faith that God can heal them, that he, that he could heal them. And then not seeing their children healed, which leads to this crisis of faith for them because then they start to believe the lie that I just did not have enough faith. So how do I conjure up that faith on my own? Like, I just need more. How do I make it happen? I need to have more faith, which leads to this very works-based mentality in the church of us trying to conjure up the faith to make something happen. Years ago, when I was, uh, when I was running the skateboard ministry, um, there was this kid. I was probably 20, was 25 years old, 24 years old at the time. And this kid started coming to all these events that we were doing. He was an orphan, 13 years old in and out of the foster care system. And he'd show up at these events, amazing skateboarder, like so good. And um, took notice of the kid, we start hanging out with the kid, the kid starts coming around more and more, and 
we're hearing some of his story. Like the kid's been in and out of the foster care system. He's never had a home. Doesn't really know his parents. Um, has struggled with drug and alcohol addiction his whole life. It's just like kind of this kid that's been left solo. Well, the kid ends up being adopted at some point in the years that, that I knew him. And um, the kid came to faith in Jesus. He, he, we started taking him on the road with us, and he started traveling with us when he was like 16 on up to when he was probably 19 or 20. And um, anyway, the great kid. So like many of the guys who traveled with our skateboard ministry, guys kind of age out of skateboarding, right? Like at some point you're like, eh, I'm a, I should get a real job and like I'm going to get married and have kids. And so like they start moving on and this kid kind of moved on. And I was living in San Diego at the time, Seattle at the time when I met him, then San Diego through our relationship. And Heather and I had just moved back up here in 2008. And out of nowhere, I get a call from this kid and I hadn't talked to him in a couple years. And he just said, it's probably 2011 or 12. He said, um, Chris, I'm in a really bad spot. He's like, I, like, I'm literally in this house right now surrounded by people that are shooting up and um, like, I can't get out of the cycle. Like, I desperately need your help. Like, would you pray with me? And like, we prayed together. Like, in all faith, I'm like, Jesus, heal Ed. You know, like, be with this boy. Like, draw near to him. Show up. Whatever you need to do, make it happen, Lord. And I'm like contending in faith that something's gonna happen with this boy. Fast forward Two years later, I get another kind of SOS phone call from him, and he says, um, I'm in a bad place again. Like, I, I desperately need help. Like, I can't eat. I don't have any money. I don't have a place to live. And I said, Ed, I'm getting on a plane today, and I'm going to come spend a few days with you, and let's get this stuff ironed out. And I flew to Seattle, spent three days with the kid, got him a phone, fed him, like, got him all set up so that he had a place to live, and, and things were looking good. Ed started surrounding himself with people and starting to try to, like, make some dis- good decisions and have accountability in his life. I left. We stayed in contact, and he was starting to look like things were getting better. And about a year later, I get a phone call from one of our friends that Ed had OD'd and died. And everything in me just was like, oh. Lord, I believed, you know, like I had faith. And there's sometimes in our life when things do not go our way, right? They don't go the way that we planned. Like it could have worked out way different. I didn't have the support. I'm beating myself up. Like I'm even thinking about these disciples as they're going like, Jesus, why couldn't we cast it out? We've done this before. Jesus, I'm so confused. He brought him to us. Like, did he, do you imagine the situation as Jesus is praying or as the disciples are praying for this boy and they're believing in faith that they, the boy's gonna get healed and the disciples are just like, blah, 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 in the name of Jesus, amen. Nothing. Okay, let's pray again. In the name, in the name of Jesus, Amen. And nothing's happening. Like, can you imagine the crisis that they're experiencing? So, Jesus says, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And so we've, we've kind of been raised in a culture where when we hear this text, it's our understanding, the way we make sense of this is just we need to conjure up more faith because my faith is the thing that's lacking. And so we talk as if sort of any Christian can just go out and move mountains around, right? Like we're going to leave this service today and we're literally going to be like Canfield Mountain. We're moving you over to, you know, the Washington-Idaho border, (laughs) you know, like. uh, But we phrase things and in this, this way of just saying, like, we, we just need more. Like, I didn't have enough. If I could just conjure up more faith, then I'd be able to access this power. And if God is some kind of divine vending machine for me, if you just put the right ingredients in, then you actually get out of it what it is that you want. And this makes me so angry because these people who are supposed to be like pastors and leaders, people serving the church, are instead like beating the church down causing people to believe that they just need to conjure up more faith. And when you hear things like that, whatever faith you do have begins to be rattled, doesn't it? I had faith, and then I tried to exercise it, but then it didn't happen. And then this verse says that, 
you know, I lacked faith like the disciples, and so now I got to figure out a way how to get more faith. And what's interesting about this is when, when our faith is rattled, what it does is it sort of puts the onus on you to conjure up the faith. Like that is your responsibility, as if God is sort of standing back and just saying, look, you're not praying the right way. I have this acronym that you have to pray every time. There's a model to this and a mode. I need you to follow the guidelines if you want to see things happen. So put into me properly, like pay the dollar, and what comes out is what you wanted. And that's sort of the culture that we're, we're, we're raised in in the church, and so if you're not praying the right way, if you're not feeling the right thing, you're not saying the right words, like I'm gonna, Jesus is sort of like, I'm gonna hang out here and I'm gonna stand back and watch until you get it together. And when you get it together, I'll step in and help you. And that's what we assume in our lives sometimes. And that's just not the picture of the God of the Gospels. Like that's not the picture of Jesus that we see in the scriptures at all. Here's what we need to know about this faith, is that faith doesn't come from our own effort, does it? It doesn't. Faith actually follows the work of God's spirit. Faith follows our eyes being opened to the delusion that we can actually be our own God. And then our eyes being opened to the fact that there's this savior who came to free us from our delusions. Faith isn't something that we offer to God to get his stuff. You don't give God your faith. Your sacrifice is not faith when you go to God in prayer. He's not up there quantifying how much faith you have to see how great of an answer he can or can't give you. That's not what he's doing. Faith is, is not something that we give to God to get his stuff. Faith is something that God gives to us by his grace because of Jesus. And so what Jesus is saying when, when he calls the disciples faithless and he tells them that, that faith, even the size of a mustard seed, could get any job done, what he's saying is that the object of their faith had actually shifted locations. When this father approached these men looking for freedom, the disciples forgot where they were supposed to look. They forgot that they were empowered only to move on Jesus' behalf and nothing more. They weren't moving on their past successes. They weren't moving on their past gifts or their past experiences or their parents' strength. These things likely began to become their focus. And that we're guilty of that. I mean, oftentimes we get rhythms in life and we see God work one way and then we spend our lives trying to replicate what he did back there because if I do it again, it's gonna happen again. And what God's wanting you to do is set your eyes and your focus on Jesus that he makes up the faith for you and trust to allow him to move how he wants, when he wants, where he wants. Jesus came to set the captives free. And these disciples had sort of forgotten to lean on the power of the Spirit. And we know this because in Mark's account, like if you look at this same passage, in the ESV, it jumps, you'll be tripped out, it jumps from verse 20 to verse 22. There's no 21 in the ESV. If you have an NIV, there's no 21, but it'll give you a footnote and it'll put it down on the bottom of the Bible to explain why that verse is gone. If you go to Mark's gospel, Mark includes the passage that sits in between. And um, in Mark's account of the same story, Jesus said, look, he said, this kind of demon only comes out through prayer. And prayer for us as believers is the sort of like a realignment of our hearts and our minds and our lives with what God's doing and who God is. It's putting God in the driver's seat in our lives. And prayer takes the focus off of us and puts it on God as him being the object of our faith. The object of their focus had shifted locations. They were looking to other things other than Jesus, relying on past experience or whatever it was, which is really no faith at all. Not even a mustard seed of faith is what Jesus is saying. You're trying to piggyback on your own strength and your own faith, not even a mustard seed size of faith. But if you had the faith of just a mustard seed to redirect that faith, 
to the one that's actually going to give it to you? And so how about us? How many of us have faith in things other than Jesus in our lives? How many of us are trying to do our part as Christians, like using the amazing gifts that God's given us, looking to ourselves, hoping to lean on those things? Maybe you've got money. Like, man, when it comes to money, money can be so deceptive, right? Because, you know, money can be amazing because you can give it away. You can choose to use it however you want. But money can also become tricky because money also seems to bring freedom. That's the lie we buy, right? If I had more, I actually feel more free. And so it seems as though money has a lot of power. Or maybe you've got these amazing gifts. And so you know you can use these great gifts and it's easy for you to use those gifts and it's easy for the gifts or your money or your job, career, relationships, whatever it is, to become the focus in your life which actually takes the focus off of the Lord and it puts faith on those things to lead in your life. And none of those things are bad things like the gifts and the money and the things that the Lord provides, it's all good, but those aren't the tools that can bring freedom to anybody, are they? Um, my dad always taught me from a young age. He would say, you need the proper tool to do the right job, to get the job done. And as a kid, I was always like, oh, whatever, I can use a screwdriver for anything. Pry this thing off, like do whatever, you just mess things up and make it worse, right? Well, like fast forward to like the last couple of years I've been renovating my house, buying the right tools. Game changer, like when you start using good tools, you're like, oh my gosh, this is actually fun. It's not excruciating, you know, like things actually go together properly. Like all I needed was the right tools all along and I've been sort of using the hacksaw to try to get perfect lines and piece things together. But what this world needs, honestly, is the power of God bringing freedom. And we don't have the tools. The, the only tool that can get this job done is faith in Jesus. That's it. And remember Jesus' motivation for heading into the valley in the first place. He came to set the captives free. And you and I, we can't do that. We cannot set the captives free. Jesus does that. Only Jesus can actually free the captives. The second reason Jesus had to go into the valley, verse 22 and 23. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And then what's the response? And they were greatly distressed. That sounds like good news, doesn't it? <laughs> There's no suffering like the suffering of Jesus. Right? Like, like I said before, the valley that Jesus is about to descend into is literally the lowest of all creation, the lowest that exists anywhere, what Jesus is about to go through. The, the death he was about to die would free us who trust in him from the power of sin and death once and for all. But what we need to see here is the suffering of Jesus, right? We read in verse 23 that they're greatly distressed. And I wonder if the disciples sort of get lost, stuck in the suffering of Jesus. Why are they so greatly distressed? They're getting hung up on the fact that he's gonna suffer, that they forgot the very last thing that Jesus says, which is what? He'll be raised again. Like, I would be like, uh, that part trips me out. You know, like, the rest of this, I can't really make sense of, but that part, like, what do you mean by that? And so they're like, oh, no, Jesus is gonna suffer. You know, like, that's what they, lock, they, they kind of lock eyes on. They, they, they get hung up on this fact. And so the, the suffering of Jesus wasn't the reason that he had to walk down the mountain. It wasn't for suffering that Jesus had to go back into the, the crowds. It was actually for glory. Not for suffering, but for glorification. And not just his glorification. Hear this. Our glorification. Like this is the amazing news of the gospel. In verse 23, again, he points to the resurrection and in the same way that when we come to Jesus, his motivations become ours, like we talked about, so too do Jesus' sufferings, right? His motivations become ours. We suffer alongside of Christ. But more importantly, the really good news is that his glorification becomes ours as well. And this is all over the New Testament, that we suffer with Jesus in order to be glorified with Jesus. It's why when the apostles are beaten, we read that they left the presence of the council rejoicing. 
that they were just beaten and they leave rejoicing, that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Third reason is because he came to show us the purpose of our freedom. So I'll end on this passage, uh, Matthew 17, 24 through 27. Look at this with me. It says, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter. So just to give you some context, the drachma, um, some translations, it says denarii. Uh, one denarii is like a day's wages for somebody that worked in the agricultural community. So when you're talking two drachma, you're talking two days wages that they would have to give in order to pay for the temple tax. And so the collectors of the tax went up to Peter and they said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, yes. Now, that's so confusing to me, right? Like, I read this, I'm like, yes, he did, or yes, he didn't. Like, I don't really understand what you're saying. You can read other translations to figure out what he's saying is like, yes, he did. And it says, and when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of this earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Isn't that not crazy? Like, Jesus trips me out. He could have just been like, nah, go down to the sea, throw the hook in the water, pull the fish out, open the fish's mouth. Like, they're like, talk about a faith-strengthening journey for these guys. And this is a really interesting section because this tax that's being discussed here was one that the, the Romans allowed the Jewish leaders to take in order to keep up and to repair and maintain the temple. And so it was a voluntary tax. It was not mandatory. Um, and it was considered standard for all Jewish men over the age of 20. And so there's one dynamic that we can sort of get lost in in this passage. And it's not the fact that there's this crazy story about the fish being caught with the shekel inside of its mouth. What I want you to notice here is where Jesus places the emphasis. Notice his question to Peter in verse 25. What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toller tax? from their sons or from others? And the answer to us should be really obvious, right? Everybody knows the answer. Sons aren't taxed. Sons and daughters are heirs to everything that the father has. And that's not just the way God works. It's actually the way we patterned our world as well. And in the same way, Jesus, the son of God, is making the claim that he's free from any ob obligation whatsoever to pay the tax. And so this is his reasoning behind it. One, this tax is for God's house. Two, Jesus is God's son. Three, sons aren't taxed. Four, therefore Jesus is free and he doesn't owe anything, is what he's saying. But notice that Jesus' freedom is not the point of this passage. The point here is what Jesus did with his freedom. How he used his freedom. Like the, the purpose he identified in his freedom. Jesus paid the tax even though he was under no obligation to pay it. He didn't do this because he was a slave, but because he uses freedom to actually choose submission, which is interesting. And I know submission's like a four-letter word to us nowadays, right? But the same was true back then. Like, we're gonna see it next week as the disciples are arguing about who the greatest of the disciples is. Submission is a four-letter word in our culture, but Jesus chose this word anyway. He laid down his personal, his personal and his inalienable rights because something more important was at stake to Jesus. And in this moment, Jesus demonstrates the purpose of the freedom that we are given in him by grace. The purpose of that freedom is submission. Submission to him. And so yet again, for, for those who are his disciples, the same is true for you and I. It's why 1 Peter 2.13, we're told to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. And notice, by the way, that's a big thing for the apostle Peter to be saying, writing in the first century Palestine under Roman rule. But he goes on to say, to be subject to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. And he says, 
live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So he tells them to obey the government institutions, be subject to the emperors and to the governors as sent by him, which mind-blowing, but to live as people who are free. So what's the free he's talking about? It's not defined by what we experience here on this earth. It's the shackles coming off of your heart. It's total liberation and salvation in Jesus Christ. It's his grace. So if you've been set free by Jesus, then you're totally and completely free. Like even the CEO, like the founder of the cosmos will not hold you accountable on your own for his law. That's freedom. Because Jesus actually stepped in in your place. He paid the price. You're free because of what he did. He calls you free. Who can call you a slave? Like it doesn't even matter what this life looks like. You are free as free gets. And so it's time, church, that we actually put our freedom to work. We gotta put it to work. It's time to step into your freedom. And so what does that look like? It looks like Jesus paying a tax that he didn't owe so he could just remove distraction as he walked toward a cross that he did not deserve. And it looks like our gracious God who lived and died and rose for us and emptied himself, made himself nothing, became a servant, obedient to the point of death. That's what freedom looks like for those who are in Christ. And so some of us here today, you need to stop using our freedom to make excuses. Some of us here need to stop using our freedom to sort of stake a claim to everything that we think we have the right to. We need to stop using our freedom to boast about the areas of life where our conscience is clear at the expense of the seared conscience of those around us who are weaker than we are. It's time to put those things away. And, and, and most of all, it's time to stop using your freedom in Jesus to sit around and do nothing for the kingdom of God. It doesn't make sense to live passive lives as a free person. There was a, a missionary named Jim Elliott who most of you have probably heard of. And uh, Jim Elliott died as a missionary in Ecuador in the 1950s. And Jim Elliott left behind a daughter and a wife, and his wife went on to write books and tell countless stories about them reaching unreached people uh, in Ecuador, this unreached people group in Ecuador. And as they're in Ecuador, and as they start to like make contact with this unreached people group, and they start to get closer and closer to them, this guy Jim basically thinks to himself, like, it's actually time to make real contact with them. Like, we need to go in and actually try to spend time with them, and we need to go in and actually live among them. And so he moves in, and he never comes home. They kill him. Like, he's out there giving his life to set the captives free because he so believed in the message of Christ, and he wanted to take it to the lost. And so he goes out there, and he loses his life in the process of it. And so by faith in Jesus, there's this quote from this book that I read 20 years ago in Bible college that I'll never forget that most of you have probably heard from Jim Elliot, and he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You can't keep this life, you can't. So why not take hold of something that you can actually never lose, something that can never be taken from you? And if submission marked the life of God himself, the God of the universe, the only true free being in existence, then what are we saying as his creation when we're not able to find the same freedom? We receive freely and it's time for us to give freely. And the power of the gospel is actually seen in those who willingly laid their lives down. You see that all through history. You see that in the apostles' lives later people that were willing to lay their lives down because they believed that the freedom they experienced was Jesus was better than the freedom they could try to fight for here on this earth. Where are you at this morning? Where do you find yourself? 
as we talk about these points. That Jesus came to show us the purpose of our freedom, that he came to glorify those that he freed, that he came to set the captives free. Do we take on that mission with Jesus? Or do we sit back and sort of bask in our freedom and live complacent, passive lifestyles that don't match the life that Jesus has called us into? That's one of mountains and valleys and hardship and suffering, all the while being glorified by the Lord himself and being free as free can be. Amen. Would you pray with me? Jesus, uh, I thank you for your church. I thank you for this freedom that we talk about that even for some of us, we don't even get. (laughs) We're still trying to make sense of it. But I feel grateful, God. I feel grateful that because of your sacrifice, we can have faith in you and be free. And I pray for those in this room, God, that have had experiences in in their life where either they've been told to just conjure up more faith, pray harder, do more things. I pray, Jesus, that you would just wipe away those thoughts and that ideology from us that we would realize this morning that it's only our faith is only in you, Jesus. You are the only one that can give us faith that doesn't make sense, the faith to move mountains, and even the faith the size of a mustard seed. So I pray as we leave, Jesus, we'd walk in that. We wouldn't be a people that would file this whole message away uh, into the filing cabinet and maybe deal with it some, somewhere else, someday else, far down the road. But we'd be a people that leave this place today and actually begin to live in the freedom that you've granted us and to be a people that will preach and proclaim freedom for the captives everywhere we go and to be a people with whom the glory of God himself manifests, shines through us, that others would see you in us, Jesus. So this is not about us living the perfect life and doing the perfect things and constantly doing everything right. It's about allowing the Spirit of God, the glory of God, to have his way in and through us, that others would see that first. Jesus, we love you, Lord. I thank you uh, for your word. I thank you for each person in this room, and I pray your blessings upon them as we leave today. In your name, amen.